Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 11, Adventures in Babysitting. Let's get this show on the road. We have such an exciting announcement today. We have our most amazing event yet. Coming up on December 16th, it's a baking competition. It's going to be a live stream. It's a fundraiser. It's Carrying Wayward's very own Baking for the Archives. Oh my god, honestly, Drew, I am like so excited about this. Like I've been bursting at the seams to be able to talk about it finally. And so the day is today. Happy December, everybody. So just like for a little bit of background, like what is the archives? Like the archives is actually one of the largest independent LGBTQ2 plus archives in the world and the only archive in Canada with a mandate to specifically collect queer archival material at a national level. Their mandate is first to acquire preserve, organize, and give public access to information and materials in any medium by and about LGBTQ2 plus people, primarily produced in or concerning Canada. And the second part of their mandate is to maintain a research library, international research files, and an international collection of LGBTQ2 plus periodicals. So the work that they do is so, so, so important, and we really wanted to be able to support that. So Mary and I are challenging each other to a festive baking competition, which we'll be live streaming on our YouTube on December 16th from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll be posting all the details on carryingwayward.com, so make sure to head over there and get an early start. Go subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't forget. There's going to be more details on the website. We're going to be giving you more details next week. I just want to say that I am very, very excited to be able to beat Drew in a baking competition. Dems fighting words, girl. <laughs> It'll be so much fun. Come and hang out with us on December 16th. You and I are going to be baking, Drew, but people are going to be hanging out with us like in the chat, asking us questions about Supernatural. We're going to be ta talking about queer archival, and we're also going to be talking about anything on Supernatural while baking, festive treats, maybe with some special guests. Wink, wink, wink. It's going to be like a perfect December afternoon. I've already picked out a sweater for it. So getting back to our usual announcements, this week we'd like to shout out Bubbles is hardcore and do 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 for the lovely reviews it left on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it and it does help so much. Thanks, guys. Okay, so what did we think of this episode, Drew? I really have a, like a heartfelt spot in me for like time title cards. Is that a weird thing to say? Time title cards? What do you mean by like, that? Like this episode starts with the whole like the one week. And then, like, two weeks later and three weeks later, it, like, brought something to me. And the only example I can think of where I've seen it before and it I feel works so well is The Shining, of all places. Oh. Like, no relation to this scene. Like, I'm not tying anything together. But I think it does something to storytelling where it's, like, that fade to black, time has passed, new scene. 
it really did well to encapsulate what we needed to feel in this moment. That first little montage in the beginning is is really, really quite powerful. And it says a lot, actually. It shows a lot without telling us a lot, which I really appreciate. It's something, it's the kind of storytelling that I really appreciate when Supernatural is able to do. What it was trying to do, which to me was get across the emotions and how they're feeling and how they're coping, in such a brief period of time, was done so well, and I got it immediately. Are we ready for the recap? I'm ready, count me down. Three, two, one, go. This week we have the boys obviously reeling with the loss of Bobby. We get this really heartfelt opening where we kind of see how they're dealing with it and how time passes for them. Ultimately, we get down to Sam, who is trying his best to move forward and be good and figure out what the next steps look like. And Dean, who is just all about finding Dick and getting revenge, which honestly, I kind of get. Sam ends up picking up a call from Bobby's phone. It's a little girl. He tracks the number down, finds out it's the daughter of a hunter who obviously had given Bobby's number as in a case of emergency and decides to go be a babysitter and save the day and figure out what's going on. And Dean's all like, I'm going to stay here and work on this and go deal with Frank. And they have their own little side adventure, which really is just some fun, meaningful stuff we'll get to later. But ultimately, Sam goes after this creature that obviously stole this girl's uh, father. And it turns out he's wrong about it because John sucks at hunting, hashtag. Um, and then... Dean has to show up and save the day. And then ultimately the daughter, Cassie, Chrissy, Cassie, I forgot her name, Chrissy, ultimately ends up being the one to save the day with her amazing acting skills and a quick swift knife to the creature's heart. And they actually convinced this guy to quit hunting, it seems, so his daughter can have a normal life. And Dean and her have like a cute little heartfelt moment of like, again, dad, Dean energy, uh, time. Yeah, there you go. That's That's this episode. I'll be very honest. I think the timing between watching and recording today is a little longer than usual. So I did have to do like a quick like, let me just reread the plot of this once like earlier today to make sure I'm not missing anything major. And I'm like, oh yeah, it really is kind of like a bare bones episode. I mean, I think that the goal is really to show how the boys are dealing with grief. I, you know, like just to kind of like give it all away in one one sentence. Like I think that's really the goal. And I think that the fact that they manage to do that, they focus on that without getting lost in complicated storylines, which they have a tendency of doing sometimes. Like I think is is just a really effective piece of 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 television. Like I, I think that I, I like this episode. I think it's a great one. It's a weird barometer we've used in the past is like, is this a core episode you need to watch and like missing it would ruin something? No, like you could probably skip it if you were really pressed for time. But like, I would choose to watch it again because I genuinely enjoyed it. I think those are the best ones, the ones that you choose to watch. All right. This episode was written by Adam Glass, directed by Jeannot Swark, and originally aired on January 6th, 2012. So we get a longer road so far montage uh, because the show was back from the holiday break, right? Like we talked about that, about how it was the mid-season finale. And then we're back now. It's January. Time has passed uh, both for the boys and for the audience. So there's like this shared, like coming back to life quite literally. So it's been three weeks since Bobby died. Uh, Sam and Dean are obviously having very, very different ways of dealing with it, which we're going to be talking about in story time. Dean's beer mysteriously disappears from within the bottle at the beginning of the episode. The way it was done, the way they presented this, made it really feel like a mystery ghost came in and finished his beer behind his back. Like, I know that wasn't what they intended. That doesn't seem like a thing Dean would do. Like, I don't think Dean would, like, comment on his beer being empty quicker than he anticipated. It feels like a... So you feel like he's, like, blacking out 
basically, and not remembering that he's been drinking. Again, that's what I think they were trying to get across, but for some reason, like, the lines came off almost silly. I guess we'll see in the next few episodes what's going on with that. Is there a mysterious beer-drinking ghost? Or just a mysterious beer-drinking teen? We don't know. (laughs) We do meet Chrissy, who's a hunter's daughter. She called Bobby's cell for help after her dad goes missing. I'm going to take a very safe guess and say we never see her again, but a really decent one-off character. I liked her. This has no bearing on the episode, the season, or the series. But we do find out that Gwyneth Paltrow is a Leviathan. (laughs) And I I do mention it because I think, like, it shows that the Leviathan are infiltrating human society through, like, influential human beings. And especially seeing as they're putting, like, their, like, mind control goop in... Oh, see what I did? Goop? (laughs) (laughs) I was just gonna say! Oh my god, I didn't do it on purpose! Their mind control, like, ooze in, like, food. You know, it makes sense to be replacing Gwyneth Paltrow uh, so that, you know, she could tell people to eat weird things. If you needed me to pick a celebrity to make that joke with, I think she's one of my top contenders. Dean paid Frank $15,000 to decode the numbers that Bobby left them. And it turns out that they are coordinates for a field in Wisconsin. I love a mystery. I'm intrigued to know more about this. I know we get like a little bit, but not much. I'm excited. Like this is like the, I want to know what the plan is. I want the details. Give them to me. Frank gives Dean this speech that kind of sounds like what Bobby told him before he died. And I'm going to be talking about that more in critical time. Honestly, I was shocked by how much I love that speech. John is again wrong about lore. (laughs) I love that. His journal says that Vitalis hunt alone when they actually hunt in pairs. Hashtag John was actually a really bad hunter. Yes. We get a very rare glimpse into Dean's life where, like, while Sam was at Stanford, tells Chrissy that he hunted a Vitala and that that's when he found out that they actually hunt in pairs. And the thing is, like, since John never corrected his journal, we could be hinting at the fact that Dean and John weren't talking at the time. I saw that another way, and I think I hate it more. I would not be shocked if he did tell John, and John just said, must have been a fluke, I'm right, you're wrong. I just, I have so many thoughts about, like, that time period, because there's very little actual canon information about it, and so it opens up all of these possibilities that are more heartbreaking than the next one. So Dean refuses to bring Chrissy into the fight, which already puts him, like, miles ahead of John as a caretaker. Uh, Again, like, this is just Dean being a better parental figure than John ever was. I I hesitate to say that he's, like, a parental figure to Chrissy just because of how short the interaction is, but, like, definitely a better caretaker. Like, that's for sure. A better adult figure. Uh, Sam and Dean convince Chrissy's dad to retire from hunting so that Chrissy can have a normal life. I'm just chalking this up as one of the best wins we've had in a long, bloody time. And I truly, like, again, assumptions aside, I don't think we're ever going to see these two again. I am choosing to believe that they go off and have the best happy life, father, daughter. They open up a cute shop together and there's never another issue in their life and they live happily ever after. That sounds so lovely. And this is when you secretly reveal that in season 12, they show up again and she's turned into a mothman and he had to kill her. 
Why did I go with Mothman of all things? Oh my god, Drew, you have no idea. <laughs> oh, do we get a Mothman arc? That'd be great. Maybe. Maybe. We get weirder things, let me tell you. Only have the title of the episode. I'm still waiting for Pac-Man Fever, whatever the hell that's about. Oh, you're going to love that one. There is a famous haunted arcade cabinet, and allegedly it doesn't show up in the show. So what the hell could it be? Anyways, we'll get there eventually. Our theme this week is grief, and it comes from the Latin word gravar, meaning to make heavy. I just feel like I don't think I've ever heard a better definition of grief in my life because like grief really does feel like a weight on your shoulders or like in your chest or on your chest. And when you think about it that way, it makes a lot of sense like that we would find it really difficult to move on or even to move at all when we're experiencing grief because everything just feels so heavy. These very like not super obvious relations to like the word origin but then as soon as you put it together it's like oh that really it gets across the feeling through like something completely different i find that really really cool when that happens do you want to get us started with sam i found it hard this week to separate the two of them because i feel like so much of what i want to talk about is comparing the two of them and how they are dealing with this grief sam ultimately i think we can both agree is more accepting not ready to move on, but has in his own way made peace with that like Bobby is gone and he's ready to continue living his life and doing what Bobby would want. Uh, you know, keep up the fight, live for himself and for the world. And this is where we really kind of see how differently Sam and Dean are taking this. And it's what pushes Sam to keep going and take him down the road to meeting Chrissy and being a hunter and helping people. And it just feels like the... Sam, and yes, I feel like there's always something that deep down, like, is he really moving on or is he doing it in an attempt that it'll help him move on? It's tough to say, but it really feels like he is making the moves he needs to move forward. We, we've seen Sam and Dean having, like, very different reactions. First to Bobby's death, right? Like, we talked about that extensively. But also, if we go back further, like, in the aftermath of John's death, like, they also had, like, a very, very different reaction to that. So I guess it just makes so much sense that they would be reacting, again, entirely differently to this. The thing is, like, I'm, I'm just not sure that Sam is, like, more accepting of the situation than Dean. Like, I think, I think after the, the first couple of weeks of shock, like where they're both having trouble moving, like they're so, right, they're so like um, pressed, well, depressed. We talked about depression not too long ago, but like they're so bogged down with the weight of this grief that it's hard to move at all, let alone move on. Um, but I do think that after these first couple of weeks of shocks, like they start moving on in their own way, or at least they start moving Right. Like and, and I would argue that they're both trying to honor Bobby's memory. But again, being the complete opposite archetypes that they are, they're going about it completely differently. And for Sam, I think that he sees helping Chrissy as like honoring Bobby's legacy. Like that's why he decides to go, even though Dean's not on board, because Dean has a different way of looking at this. While Sam is making the moves that make it seem like he's able to move on a little better. There's like a very clear moment when he 
one takes the phone call and then again meets Chrissy and has to actually deliver the news that Bobby has passed. He wasn't able to say it like it like over the phone. He just couldn't. And then in person, there was like an actual like pause where he has to, he stutters and fumbles for a bit. And it's never explicitly said, but this seems to me like it's probably the first time Sam has had to inform someone and probably even say it out loud and admitting it to himself. You know, when I'm I'm listening to you and like what I'm sort of hearing is that before this, Bobby was a part of their life, right? And like that was the normal state of things for them. Now that usual state of things has changed, right? Bobby is no longer with them. And that change is like a really profound one because the story that Sam has been telling himself about himself is changing, right? His identity is changing to a certain degree. Like it's no longer... Bobby's around. Bobby's never too far. He's always a phone call away. He's always ready to help us. Now it's like, Bobby's not around anymore. Bobby can't help us. We're on our own in that sense. And like, this is a really deep restoring in anyone's life, really. I think can explain why Sam is having a hard time the first few times that he's trying to explain that Bobby has passed. Like he literally needs to practice that performance, right? Like practice telling that story, making it a part of himself. And I, I don't know. I find that so incredibly relatable, like after the loss of someone. Oh, it also just made me realize something I need to just say. And that is the, he is now effectively filling in the Bobby role for someone else. The way they, whenever they had trouble, they could call Bobby. And now someone needs help and is making the call and Bobby's not there. Sam is stepping in to be that Bobby for this other person temporarily. Ugh. And and again, I think that that is how Sam views honoring Bobby's legacy. That's what he wants to do. And, and I agree with you. I think that that is a very beautiful way to develop Sam's character and I do wish that they had leaned more into that because sadly they don't. But I wish, I wish they had, frankly. So my last point with Sam then actually kind of like really comes full circle nicely where like, you're right. I think taking this case and I think even by extension working it alone is kind of like a coping mechanism for him with his grief. He knows is what Bobby would have wanted. So it's like honoring his memory to keep up the fight and to do good. But he also kind of rushes in alone and even makes mistakes, albeit they are John's errors first, but it's still Sam trusting John versus doing his own research. Topic for another day. Sam is doing what we've seen Dean do in the past and use the job as a coping mechanism. Um, a chance to bury his head in his work and not have to think about life outside of the job and just really go at something that he knows he can solve. Here is a problem with a solution and he can walk away victorious and right now he kind of just needs a win and being able to do it in honor and in memory of Bobby, I think just makes it that much more appealing to him. And again, as much as I've said, yes, the error was clearly John's poor information that Sam is working off of. It also, I think feels to me like this is Sam's head. Isn't clear. He needed to get out of that cabin, right? Like he no longer wanted to feel or he needed to no longer feel the way that he was feeling and like one way to make it pass or at least to kind of like 
to, to not think about Bobby's death for at least a little bit is to kind of go back to your routine in those moments, right? Like, and, and I think for Sam, for both of them, really, like the routine is the job, like hunting is the routine and it, it like keeps Sam moving, like literally despite the weight, instead of just being completely immobile, like in that cabin stuck underneath all that grief. Also, I just feel like three weeks in a cabin with Dean, who's in like fervorous, like hunter, like revenge mode and drinking, probably skipping some showers too. I imagine the smell and there's no good and Sam needed out of that too. Just personal headcanon. There you go. I think that it's that idea of like getting a momentum going again, like to be able to kind of like, because when you're, again, just thinking about like heaviness, when the heavier you are, the harder it is to move, like just physics wise, right? And so like emotionally, the, 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 the heavier you are emotionally, the harder it is to just like engage with other stuff, with other people, with like the outside world. And so it's, I don't know, I find, I find that so relatable. I'm like, ah, yes. <laughs> uh, if I may move to Dean. I feel like his grief is a bit more, like, on the table and easier to see. I feel like the very, like, out of place but well done, like, one week, then two week title cards do so much more to tell Dean's story here. Unlike Sam, who, as I said before, is kind of looking to move forward and, like, work through it, Dean is facing his grief like it's a brick wall and he is a locomotive and is just going to go full steam ahead into it. And right now, all Dean can see is that someone took Bobby from him and Cass, and he will stop at nothing to get his revenge. Like, he has, like, this is, like, full-on, like, I have your picture with the eyes X'd out and on a dartboard in my office vibes. I wonder, <laughs> or at least I think that the writers have an easier time writing Dean than writing Sam. Or maybe, and I'm not sure how much of that is true, but like maybe it's just Dean's grief that's just more easily relatable or easily recognizable than Sam's for the audience. Maybe it's a little bit of both. I'm not sure. But either way, like I fully agree with what you're saying. Like when you, especially when you're saying that Dean is like facing grief like a brick wall, like he is literally facing a wall, right? Like in... <laughs> The episode it's a wall full of like notes about dick roman and the numbers that he's trying to figure out his dick wall right his dick wall exactly all all his dick pics are on that wall it's the dick pic wall mm. <laughs> i love that we can have this in the middle of the show god damn it i hate this man so much i love that you were really really quiet there for a second <laughs> I got the visual, but people didn't. <laughs> I know you were laughing. <laughs> oh, I was yet. Yeah, no, there was a lot of... It was that very silent, breathy laughter. Yeah, Sorry. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Just so that people don't think that I've offended you somehow. <laughs> no. I will never be offended by a dick wall. <laughs> how, do I, how do I walk out of this one now? Um, so he's got his wall full of notes about Dick Roman and the numbers that he's trying to figure out. And I think that, like, doing that is Dean's way of honoring Bobby's memory and his legacy. Like, because to him, again, and he says, like, that's a line on the show, Bobby died getting us those numbers. And so for him, the best way to honor him is to finish what he couldn't. And it's weird because as I'm saying this, like, it, it, 
I'm kind of realizing that like Sam seems to want to honor the way that Bobby lived and Dean wants to honor the way that Bobby died. Ooh, I like that. Again, like one, I agree. I think there is something and I don't know if it's the way that Dean is written versus the way Dean has a little bit more like history to him. Like they have a better understanding of him as a writing team or if coincidentally we're just in a scenario where Dean is getting the more easier to understand, easier to visually connect with uh, version of grief in this case. Like it makes more sense that given these two ways of handling grief, Sam and Dean are given these two. But is this just an easier way to write grief in general? Again, that can be debated for hours, but I think it fits Dean really well. But this this thought, though, that Sam is going off of, like, the memory of Bobby and, like, what he would have done when he was alive versus Dean doing, finishing his work now that he is gone. Oh, I love that. And, and I want to stress that both of these are expressions of love. I think that's so important to remember. Oh, 100%. I don't think either one's wrong. No, exactly. So we also get this episode, uh, and I know you you touched on in the long game, and I really didn't expect it. Was this like emotional moment between Dean and Frank? Like, not only had I kind of more or less written off Frank having any real backstory, but that he'd be able to like dole out such an interesting and like emotional moment with Dean and like share this advice with him. And like, as you said... Uh, you plan to discuss it, so I don't want to step on your toes, but I did find it to be a very powerful speech, and I look forward to critical time. Like, genuinely want to hear more about this from you. Yeah, I mean, I am going to be talking about it more later, because uh, I also find this moment quite fascinating, but I, 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 I do want to mention that I recently listened back to our episode on how to make friends and alienate monsters, and it kicked me in the teeth that, like, our conversation was basically about how when Bobby gave Dean the speech about like getting a case of the Anne Sextons, like we mentioned that maybe the better advice or the more gentle advice, I should say, would have been to tell him to maybe step away until he felt better, which is the first thing that Frank does. Uh, like the first thing that he does is actually to tell Dean to quit or he's going to drive himself into the ground. And I just, I wanted to point that out because... We had said that we wish that that had been said, and now it's been said, so. Again, this entire moment came, like, so out of left field for me, but was so powerful. So we do see in Dean, though, despite his singular focus on the demise of Dick Roman, which, again, I'm fully rooting for and I want to see happen, and I'm going to be sitting here with popcorn and a big, like, that big foam <laughs> finger glove when it does. When he is faced with what feels like a regular day-to-day rescue Sam, protect an innocent child, kill some monsters, you know, normal stuff. Um, He's like surprisingly able to flip into classic Dean the Hunter mode. And I'm not sure if he would have been this capable of doing that and going into this like save the day mode had he not had that talk with Frank. But it does let us know that, like, Dean is still Dean. Like, we still have our Dean. We haven't lost him. This isn't, like, a new Dean who has changed completely. This is just a Dean who now has a, a, a like, a goal in mind. But when push comes to shove, can still be the Dean we know and love. He is not lost to us. 
The thing is, Dean goes on the hunt because he understands that, like, Sam was taken by the Vitalas, right? Like, and so his hand is kind of forced in that sense, at least a little bit. And same goes with dealing with Chrissy. Like, he's not on board, but he's doing it anyway because he doesn't have a choice at this point. And I think that, like, going on this hunt is going to be doing two things for him. One, it's going to make him realize that he still has things to lose, right? Like, he still has stuff to live for. And that despite how he feels right now, that he actually still cares about a lot of stuff that are happening on this earth, which again, I'm going to be talking about in critical time. But it also highlights that like in grief, we need community. Like we need people around us to anchor us, to make us realize that like we still care about stuff, even though emotions might be harder to access in those moments, but also to like ask for and accept help, to feel useful, to feel purposeful. And like, you can't feel any of these things in complete isolation. Like we need others and Dean needs others. And I think that this hunt is sort of the thing that proves that to him. It's a really good moment for the audience, for us, to be reminded that Dean is still the Dean we know and love. Like I feel like we've seen the show do this where they've taken a character and transformed them. These have generally been a lot more extreme, like Cass when he thinks he's becomes basically God. When I, I would even say when Bobby is in the wheelchair and feels like he's not good enough, soulless Sam and even demon blood Sam, like we've seen characters go through transformations where they have like lost their self in a sense. And I think seeing Dean, yes, it's push come to shove. He's doing this to save Sam. Otherwise, he would have let Sam go on his adventure alone. But it shows that our our Dean is still there. We have not lost him, which I think is the big thing here. And you're right. He needs other people. He needs connections. And that's what we're seeing is he has not gotten to a point where he is cutting himself off to get to his ends. Which then brings us to a bit of an elephant in the room, which you foreshadowed. Actually, we both foreshadowed, but I didn't know it was a foreshadowing delay till now is his drinking and the disappearing beer. And it just shows how hard he's hitting the bottle and not just since Bobby. Like, we've kind of been seeing the drinking all season. And this is sort of just elevated to a new level since the loss. And we know Dean to be a bit of a drinker and one to succumb to vice as a form of coping. So it's not out of anywhere mysterious. It's kind of like par for the course. But I am very intrigued to see how it is brought along with them on this adventure. Is it going to be something they just drop by the wayside? Is it going to be an actual thing to reel with? Because this is like something he would need to face that is not a thing he can punch. So I'm intrigued to know how they deal. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you right now, they don't. <laughs> um... <laughs> not I, Honestly, not surprised. Just thought I'd say it. Right. No, no but I agree with you. I mean, I'm I'm part of the like... Dean Winchester is a functional alcoholic club. Like, you know, I, <laughs> it just it just makes sense. Like, you see it. It's visible. I don't blame him for it. You know what I mean? Like, I totally get it. It, it makes sense that that's how he would cope. And, and I do wish that they went into that a little bit more. But you are right. We are seeing it's it's a lot more present now that his drinking is is like kind of through the roof. And and we're gonna. They're going to play with that a little bit this season, actually. We are going to see more of that. So that's why I don't want to comment too much on this because I know what's coming. Uh, so I'm just going to 
kind of leave it at that for this season. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Hey, this is a message for John. I found your number in a copy of your notes. Um, <clears throat> you suck. Seriously, a bunch of your notes have been circulating with hunters in my area. Lots of new bloods. Finding old hunters journals entries that have been a wealth of knowledge. And here I am cleaning up the remains of a slew of them because your journal is riddled with mistakes. Luckily, I've been around the block a few times. So I knew to go after the Vitalas. Yes, plural, you dolt. After that, I tracked down whoever had found your notes, had a good look through them. And I swear, you might as well have just been writing fan fiction at this point. Half your assumptions are wrong, and the only things that seem to be right look to be in someone else's handwriting. Clearly you had someone smarter than you lending you a hand, but you sure as shit didn't let them go over your homework. I mean for shit's sake. You have a section on vampires with large print subheading declaring them wiped out? You think you committed vampire genocide? Wow. Not only are you terrible and wrong, but you have an ego that can crush both Vitalas the next time you have to fight a proper pair. And let's not even get to the notes about your poor bloody kids. I hope for their sakes they found someone much brighter and fatherlier than you. From one hunter to another, may I just say, get bent and quit hunting before you get yourself killed. This episode brings us another older hunter trying to tell Dean that like if he continues the way that he's going right now, he's going to get himself killed. So the first time that we get this kind of speech is in 709, How to Win Friends and Influence Monsters. And it's Bobby who says, you're a hunter meaning you're whatever the job you're doing today. Now, you get a case of the Ann Sextons, something's going to come up behind you and rip your fool head off. Now, you find your reasons to get back in the game. I don't care if it's love or spite or a $10 bet. And in today's episode, we have Frank who tells him, you're going to drive yourself into the ground. You want to keep going? Decide to be fine until the end of the week. Make yourself smile because you're alive and that's your job. And then do it again the next week. I call it being professional. Do it right with a smile or don't do it. And so we've got both Bobby and Frank who are warning Dean that like he's at a dangerous crossroads and if he doesn't change, he's going to die on the job. And the thing is, we know that hunters don't live very long, right? And these are two older hunters who are telling him this. So these are people who have survived through these moments that Dean is going through. And they're both telling him that if he continues, he's going to die. And it almost happens, actually. Like, had Chrissy not intervened, he and Sam would have been killed by the Vitalas. Now, of course, Chrissy plays, like, a, a more important role in, like, almost getting them caught and whatever. But when we think about it, maybe Dean just shouldn't have brought her to even just to the site, right? Like, just... You know, she had memorized it, but still, like, he could have been like, well, I'm not going anywhere until you're telling me where you're going and your dad's going to die. You know, like, just put pressure on her, you know, <laughs> like, don't bring her into the battle. But anyway, whatever. 
And the thing is that both of these speeches sort of happen like after the loss of somebody that he loves. Like Bobby talks to him after Cass dies and Frank talks to him after Bobby dies. And I think that the close call with the Vitalas is a really hard wake up call for Dean because in that moment, there's like a series of really quick cuts between the Vitalas who are about to kill Chrissy and close ups of Dean's face while one of the Vitalas says to Chrissy, he can't help you, no one can. And like, realistically, that line is really meant to show how helpless Dean is or how helpless Dean feels, like not only in this specific moment, but overall this season. And, and obviously, like in this episode, they all make it out alive, like they all needed a win and they all get it, which is really quite lovely, definitely wonderful. But the reason that I say that it was a wake up call for Dean is that be, like at the very end of the episode, we see him driving the Impala Actually, no, not even the Impala. He can't even drive his freaking car. So he's driving some random car while trying to smile, which was basically Frank's advice to him. And it just looks so painful because like he is just deciding to take the advice, like because he does want to live at the end of the day. Like that's what he realizes in this episode. Oh, my God. There's just there's so much to unpack here. And I... It's been a while, but just an odd Dean. Aw, Dean. Yeah, definitely. This is an odd Dean moment. And that's the thing. Like, I feel like Dean often has, like, close calls with death. And that's when he realizes that he wants to live. And especially when he's depressed like this after he's lost somebody. You know, he puts himself in dangerous situations and has a really close call with death and realizes that actually he wants to live. And we're going to be seeing that, like literally all the way up to the end of the show. I also just want to like reflect for a second on the fact that he watches Chrissy do exactly that. Exactly. And I think just seeing that in someone so young with like a future ahead of them, I think really hits him hard. And I think it really reflects a little bit at the end there, his uh, convincing the dad to quit. This week, we have a message from Jenna. Before we listen to it, we wanted to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail to respond to anything we discussed today. You can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, what is your favorite costume you've ever worn? For our Roadhouse supporters, Honor and Paula Talk, stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Drew and Marie. It's Jana from Seattle, and I'm calling to talk to you about your coverage of The Third Man. I first want to tell you that there were several things that I loved about your discussion. I loved the discussion of the parallels between police violence and angel violence in the episode. This is what science fiction and fantasy often does best talking about contemporary issues in a fantasy context to remove it enough from reality to make it palatable for viewers, to give them a new perspective on an old subject. But the thing I really wanted to talk about was Marie's assertion that in the 80s and 90s, there were no franchises of the kind that we have today. And what makes me, what I get really passionate about is the fact that when people discuss media franchises, they always forget the very first, the one that made all the others possible, Star Trek. The very first Star Trek novel was published in 1970. In 1976, the second one that wasn't a 
an episode recap or an episode retelling was Spock Messiah. And from after that point, novels were published every few months. When Pocketbook got the franchise, they started publishing Star Trek novels every month, sometimes more than one. Um, Star Trek made all of the other franchises that we have today possible. It showed that there was a market for text beyond the TV screen. And so whenever someone asserts that franchises of this kind didn't exist before then, it really gets my it really gets my blood going because I was a Star Trek fan from early on and I am passionate about its place in media history and fanish history. Um, I would agree with Marie that creator-approved creator content is paratext. Um, I worked as an editor on the Star Wars novels at Bantam Books in the 90s and the vetting done by property owners, IP owners, intellectual property owners, is fierce and sometimes very specific. And so from my personal experience, I am here to say that there's no question that novels, comic books, that sort of thing are paratext. Creators are directly involved. They review the outlines of every novel. They have to approve the manuscripts, they approve cover art, they're directly involved. And so it is definitely um, part of the paratext of franchise universes. <clears throat> My favorite example, but certainly not the only one, are the names of certain characters in Star Trek. For example, the first time we hear Uhura's first name is in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. It's Neota. Well, she was first named in a novel by science fiction author William Rotzler in 1982. The same is true of Sulu's first name, Hikaru. It was first created, it was first mentioned by Vonda McIntyre in one of her Star Trek novels. At this point, I've probably gone on far too long about Star Trek on a supernatural podcast, but I felt really strongly about this and wanted to share. Thanks again for everything you do. I love the podcast. I still listen to it on a weekly basis. Hope you guys are doing well, and thanks so much for listening to my rant. <laughs> Bye. Jenna, thank you so, so much for this message. You know, you talked about how I said that there were no franchises like that in the 90s. Immediately, there were two things that came to mind, and I was like, Star Trek? And the X-Files. And I'm like, of course I forgot about those. Because frankly, like, I, 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 so I'm 35 years old, which kind of places me just a little too late for these two pieces of media. And I would have technically known about them through my parents, but my parents didn't watch Star Trek and they didn't watch the X-Files. My dad was big into Star Wars. And so that's how I know about that. But I, I am very unfamiliar with Star Trek and quite unfamiliar with The X-Files. And that's actually something that I plan on remedying too. So thank you for pointing that out and for giving us like so much insider info about like how those books were published. I really appreciate that. That's really fascinating. If you haven't heard by now, the Monster of the Week boys are doing a podcast on The X-Files and that's something that I 
plan on listening to and watching the episodes. And then eventually I, I, I will go back and I do want to watch Star Trek and educate myself about that because I know, like you said, they have, th th that franchise has had such, such a deep, deep, deep impact on, on fandom, the way that it is today, fan fiction as well. A lot of the tropes that we see today come from that you know, fandom. And so I think that it's only fair that at the point where we are now and talking about these things, if I want to be able to talk about them with any kind of expertise, I, I need to at least know about these, these two franchises. So thank you for kind of bringing me back to earth about that. I appreciate it. This was such a cool voicemail. Thank you so much, Jana. First of all, the fact you worked in the publishing world and worked with Star Wars novels to me is like, I just want to sit here and talk about that for hours with you, especially given how they throw out the canon. And there was a whole shebang with that. And some of the old Star Trek comics and like novels and novel like short stories are so amazing. I've said this before, and I'm going to use this as kind of a jumping off point, how as we get these types of franchises and fandoms, they almost like roll out the red carpet for a next generation of content to kind of fill the void they've left. And they always tend to go a little further. Like I I've often used the example of like those children cartoons, the Steven universe, the adventure time, um, those types of shows and how they've been able to get a lot more progressive and open and touch on more mature subjects and just be able to branch out more. And I feel like with each passing generation of content and media, we get better representation, uh, more open dialogue. And it's amazing to think that you're right. Like one of the earliest examples of this in TV is Star Trek. And that show was so powerful and so influential in a lot of those ways. So like you, Mary, I have not actually followed Star Trek. It's, it's a weird like blip on the like, nerd badge i wear um my uncle was a huge fan my brother just started watching it so i know it's on my like horizon i'm actually playing some star wars catch up right now with some of the more in between stuff um but all that to say like it's thanks to these types of shows like even if like i think we are very clear how critical you and i are of supernatural for its failings um it's it's clear as day there are things it doesn't do right there's mistakes it's made but it's thanks to shows like supernatural that a new generation of supernatural thriller tv shows can exist and can start branching out into other subjects and hopefully be more progressive and do more and all of that leads back to the beginning of fandoms with things as early as star trek and just going to say you know early 60s doctor who started too so there's always there's always been progressive sci-fi out there yeah absolutely so thank you jenna for this amazing message and thank you lucille ball for star trek so drew what's your reflection and call to action this week i am childless and i plan on keeping it that way but I really enjoy the friendships I have formed with kids. I've worked many summer camps. Uh, past jobs have had like training days or camp days or like education for younger generations. And even just 
people I know who are growing up and choosing to have children and have amazing kids, uh, whether they be ones that live here locally on my street, my neighbors, or children of certain podcasters I am close with. I have really grown to adore the relationship I can have with a younger generation. You know what? I see that in Dean this week in the way that he connects with Chrissy in like this kind of very like, we are of two different generations. We're not going to be like best friends, but we can be mature and have a conversation and connect in our own ways. And I just want to match that energy when it comes to the younger generation, treating kids with respect, speaking to them on a level that they bring to me and not treating them like children or babies. And that is just my little call to action to remind myself to keep, keep moving forward with that. Well, we're going to see a lot more of Dean uh, having to care for teenage girls. So we'll, that'll be fun. Not a thing I expected, but weirdly looking forward to. And Mary, what is your call to action or reflection this week? Uh, so for those of you who might not know, like my um, my dog died at the end of October. And this episode is going to be out early December. But right now, as we're recording, it's about mid-November. And it's only been a few weeks. And like I'm definitely feeling the grief. And one thing that I definitely felt, especially at the beginning, was like trying to find that balance between like retreating into myself and staying on the covers and crying and like just, you know, feeling the weight of that uh, of that loss and also getting the stuff done that like I needed to do in order to keep living, like making food or getting work done or brushing my teeth, that kind of stuff. And I guess that like this episode makes me feel called to like give myself some grace over how I dealt with trying to balance that at the time. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Mary Figueroa and myself, Drew Shulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. And this week, we'd like to thank Jenna for her message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. Such a weird thing to say. My father is not a very artistic person, but he got really good at like copying something. Like if you said like an example, like if for eons in my childhood we had these like huge like figure it was like big brown rolls of paper you'd roll out kind of thing just like almost like a tapestry of those in my basement with these like huge beautiful drawings of all the sesame street characters and it's just because he was really good at being able to like one-to-one copy something like really well um so one year for halloween uh myself and my my middle brother who at the time was the younger brother uh no Youngest one was already born, but just was too young to be out. So, yes. He was, like, maybe sitting at home doing the, you know, at home in a pumpkin costume, like a cute little baby. But my brother and I went as Pokemon trainers 